0: all right good afternoon everyone how are we doing okay good good well i hope you are buckled up and ready for a great discussion over the next hour about the state of health care in missouri folks we spend a lot of time pretty much every day talking about what it will take to bring the kids home as we think about the future of rural missouri whether it's to bring the kids home to the farm or at least back home to the community you have to have opportunity. And that's why we spend so much time working on broadband, which now is no longer um, a luxury, but a necessity in our communities. Um, But it's also why we talk about the quality of life. And truly, as we think about rural communities, we have to have access to health care services, whether it's uh, emergency services or that acute care. And so today, we're going to talk about, uh, essentially, we're going to do a two-part panel. Uh, first panel focused on just the state of health care here in, the, in Missouri, and then part two will be on an opportunity that we see in neighboring states that potentially we can do here in Missouri. So the first panel, panelist, is Mr. John Doolittle. John serves as the CEO of the Missouri Hospital Association, which is the trade association for all the hospitals in the state as well as the health systems. John is a small town guy himself, up from northwest Missouri, Albany in fact. Uh, and served uh, in a leadership role in the mosaic system for Albany. I'm going to let him tell more about himself. But as I read his bio, I tell you what, this guy's impressive, and you're going to see that today. Uh, John has an undergrad from from Harvard and a master's uh, from University is it University of Texas? University of Texas Dallas. Yep. Okay, so UT and and Dallas. Um, but something I have really appreciated about John when he became CEO, uh, we got together real quick. Uh, so that we could get to know each other. And, and I tell you, he is a stand-up guy and shares our vision and dream of what rural Missouri can look like when you think about quality of life. So he and his wife, Jenny, you guys have six kids, so they are busy. John, thanks for taking time to be down here. What did I miss about your intro?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you uh, you started to refer to me as a panel, and I have gained a few pounds. <laughs> I'd like to think I still, I still fit better as a panelist than a panel, but I... Okay, you got me. I think, I think I'm getting close. Um, Garrett, again, I think the very first meeting I had uh, with anybody outside of our organization when I started at Missouri Hospital Association a year ago was with Garrett and his team. And um, you were very kind to come over, say hi. We're neighbors in Jeff City as far as where the offices are. Um, but, but way more than that, you got the story right, um, my role with Missouri Hospital Association actually kind of breaks up what was a really good story that you started to tell there. Because I was, I was the kid that went back east to college, lived in Kansas City, and the entire time my wife and I were, were there, or I, I was in London, England for a little while working for CERN or did some other things like that, um, I always knew that the ability to move back home um, – would be something we would really treasure, and so my wife is from Conception Junction, Missouri, real close to Maryville. I'm from Albany, 25 miles away. I tell people we went to different high schools together, and um, I did get the chance to do that. So, 2010, my predecessor at the hospital in Albany retired after 29 years of taking care of that community, and the the board there, which was made up of people that that I had known, you know, most of my life. Gave me the opportunity to come home and so for 11 years i was president of my hometown hospital and um got to serve on the board of missouri hospital association for the last seven of those years and then when my predecessor at mha retired i I became a candidate and so i was the the local kid that went away that got to come home and take care of family and friends and aunts and uncles and cousins and all the rest And then I kind of broke that about a year ago and and actually depopulated Gentry County a little bit when the eight of us left Albany and and, and moved to Jeff City. But um, I hope what I'm doing here, Missouri Hospital Association represents all the hospitals in the state of Missouri, from the biggest to the smallest, you know, north, south, east, west, all the rest. Um, But I think one of the reasons I was given the opportunity to be in this role was that a lot of folks recognize the need to do things differently and better related to healthcare and particularly related to rural life and rural quality of life. And um, you know, for 11 years there in Albany, I happened to be at the hospital one Monday night, 9 p.m. talking to the emergency department doctor and into the department walked my mother-in-law and father-in-law with a very concerned look on their face. And so if you ever wonder if this stuff matters, be sitting in the emergency department when a family member walks in, be responsible for the quality and availability of care that are, that are there, and think, all right, is this good enough for my, my father-in-law? Because if this thing isn't good enough for my father-in-law, it ain't good enough. And um, it was. We did well. We need to do well collectively. And healthcare is a team sport, just like so many other things we do. And so what I get to do in this role is try to make sure hospitals and health systems are very focused on caring for those who need us and as an association guy, I'm trying to do things that are good for everybody and help them come together, help them work together, help them think systemically about how we all bring what we can do to bear on
0: their behalf. Okay, that was a really great intro. Now let's start really big picture. Can you start with what is the state of Healthcare as you see it in Missouri and more specifically rural Missouri. Then maybe we can drill down from there. Yeah, let's
1: let's, let's do this really quickly. Um, so number one, healthcare, I'll even go a little bit bigger. I'll just go U.S. We won't do global. Okay. Um, healthcare is expensive and it's complicated. And if you don't believe that, then you can't have a serious conversation about it. This country, the people of this country spend $4 trillion a year on health So if you just took the health system of the United States of America and made that into like a national economy, it would be the fifth largest economy in the world. It would be about the same. The GDP of health care in this country is about the same thing as the, the GDP, the gross domestic product, the value of everything that's produced. It would be about like the, the country of Germany. Okay, so it's, it's almost 20% of the GDP of this country is health care. So we spend lots and lots and lots of money. And when people around the world need access to the greatest technology, the greatest expertise and all the rest, you know, they, they often come here. I mean, if you've ever been to Rochester, Minnesota, um, there's an awful lot of private jets near Rochester, Minnesota. There's people from all over the world flying into the Mayo Clinic. The same thing would be true of, of Cleveland Clinic, Johns Hopkins, academic medical centers all around the country. I mean, the the absolute best of it is here. But the flip side is, as far as just overall kind of population health and, and, and measures of health, we actually don't score that well compared to the rest of the world. Our life expectancy isn't as high as it is in a lot of industrialized countries. Infant mortality is actually higher, which is bad, than it is in a lot of other industrialized countries. So we've got a really expensive system that produces miracles. I mean, it just, it's the best in the world at, at, at heroic, life-saving care. But we also have a system where um, it's a little bit disaggregated as far as who spends money and who benefits and who makes money. So hospitals and health systems, you talk about that, that $4 trillion. Um, there's an awful lot of what's produced in healthcare in this country that doesn't go through hospitals and health systems. You think of pharmaceuticals, you think of insurance companies, you think you think of a whole lot of other players in the field, uh, but but probably about a third of it flows through one of one of the fifty five hundred hospitals in the country. okay, now bring that to Missouri um, it's a significant industry in the state um, because we have cities on borders it's a source of sort of medical tourism here even in the United States. people come to Kansas City, to St. Louis, to Springfield, to other urban areas in the state from outside of the state to receive access to this this life-saving care. We also have a really good network of hospitals of all sizes around the state. There are about 140 hospitals in the state of Missouri. 35 of those are the smallest sort of, what are called critical access hospitals, small town hospitals by definition. Medicare pays them a little bit differently to try and make sure that they can be out in um, a more rural area like albany missouri like appleton city yep. um, so that they so that you can have access to life-saving care convenient care in places like that so they get paid a little differently um, and then there are the rural hospitals suburban hospitals urban hospitals all the rest so let me oh, i'm sorry i clicked before, without warning there i've got some real simple little things to show you here about Missouri hospitals particularly. So I, I started bigger than hospitals, but let's, let's talk just a little bit about hospitals. So this is all about hospitals in Missouri, and this is from the year 2021. Okay, so this is old news now a little bit, but the, we haven't gotten to the end of 22. I can't tell you what it looked like at the end. You Take all hospitals in the state of Missouri in 2021. And as you, you can't talk about healthcare the last couple of years without talking about COVID and the pandemic and what happened. No matter what you feel about any part of it you you can't talk about it without acknowledging businesses shut down schools shut down hospitals didn't know what they were dealing with we had to pay whatever it took to get access to people and supplies and all the rest to be able to take care of people and if you look at this at the top missouri hospitals 2021 this is operating margins so did you make money with the way you ran your business last year and we knew this was going to be kind of hard to read in here but The red is bad, the green is good, and it's about a 40-60 split. So 40% of the hospitals in the state of Missouri in 2021 lost money on operations. 60% of hospitals in Missouri made a little bit of money on operations, 2021. Well, if you're barely squeaking by as an industry, that's usually not good news. And and for individual hospitals, that's true. Now, you look at the mix even more than that. Like we said, we got hospitals of all kind and there's 140 of these. Urban hospitals, by and large, did a little bit better. About 28% lost money, about 72%. All rural hospitals in the state, 53% lost money, 47% made money. And those critical access hospitals, those 35 kind of the smallest hospitals in the state, they were about a 50-50 mix in 2021. Well, here's another, you know, if you don't see anything else, this operating margin column here is reflected here as well. We got a lot of extra money from the federal government in 2021 to help with that, you you think of as kind of a wartime effort, you know, all hands on deck, do what you got to do, be ready to deal with COVID. Huge declines in what normally would have been things that we provide. And so we did the with and without. And what you can see here is urban hospitals, if it weren't for that provider relief money, the average operating margin would have been 0.4%, so barely squeaking by, and they were the best. Without the provider relief money, critical access hospitals would have lost 3% on average, all rurals 3.7, and all hospitals would have lost 3% margins in 2021. So it's been a rough time. It's been a rough time financially, more than that, it's been a rough time just going through the last couple of years, just like everybody else has. It, it, it hadn't been a lot of fun uh, in a lot of places since the start of this, the COVID pandemic, March of 2020. And it surely hasn't been fun um, to be in the business of providing health care. And so we've, we've lost a lot of workers. A lot of people who've been there are tired, they're worn out. And frankly, from a uh, sort of operational administrative standpoint, It hadn't been the best of times financially either. It is what it is. The other really important part here, I don't wanna sound like I'm whining, but but this this deal right here, we call it payer mix. The reality is a lot of the money that flows through that healthcare system comes from a government. Um, Medicare is the dominant payer for health services in this country and Medicaid uh, is is a portion as well. Then you got private insurance and then you have folks who don't have any insurance and that's kind of your breakdown well medicare and medicaid um, don't don't attempt to pay what it costs to provide the care they're they're designed to pay a little bit less they want to pay enough that the people who provide the care can keep the doors open but they don't want to pay more than they should and so you get some kind of cross subsidization where private insurance tends to cost a little more and they pay the hospital better than Medicare does or Medicaid does they surely pay better than 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 the uninsured would so it, it's a weird thing to run a hospital or a health system when roughly 70% of your patients either they themselves or the person providing their coverage expects to pay you less than what it costs you to provide the care and and that's that's really that's the system. And so it, it causes uh, a whole lot of discomfort and, and weird incentives when it comes to that. And um, I don't know. It, it, it is what it is. Now, the good news is it's not just operating margin, right? Folks have investments. They have philanthropy programs. They have other ways to, to access care, keep the doors open. But, but truly on operating margin, 2021 was a bad year. 2020 was a bad year
0: and here's the, the, the
1: sort of bad part, this is just the inflation graphic. We can talk inflation anywhere you want to. Um, the reality is from 2019 to 2021, our expenses went up about 17%, our reimbursements went up about four or five. <laughs> you don't get to do that for very long. Um, and then the, the last thing is, okay, well, that was 2021. What do we know so far about 2022? Unfortunately, so far for hospitals and health systems, 2022 is worse than 2021. And so there's a, there's a consulting group called Kauffman Hall that, that runs a study. And what they're showing here is on average for hospitals, operating margins to the extent that they were positive, they're down about three quarters from where they were. Expenses are up and discharges are down. And so, honestly, right now when you're a hospital association guy, you hear a lot of concerns from members about how long, how or how long they're going to keep this thing going. And so it's our job to help help work on that problem and think of ways to produce better care at a lower cost, but also to go fight for reimbursement from, from the folks who are paying for care, and the majority of those are government sources.
0: So John, at this breakout session last year, the first panel we had was focused on supply chain constraints. Uh, sounds familiar, right? I mean, you're, you're bringing Pretty that up. So. Uh, Talk a little bit more about the labor situation, particularly, you know, in rural areas. What are you hearing from your members?
1: Well, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I ran a small hospital for 11 years, and, and consultants would, would occasionally come out and talk about, you know, what was our staffing plan or our nursing staffing or whatever else it was, and they'd, they'd say, well, you know, they'd run through their little checklist, and they'd say, well, what's your, what's your no-call, no-show rate? We're like, what, what's that? And I said, well, when people don't show up for work and they, and they don't tell you they're not coming, they just don't show up for work. I said, well, we don't have one of those, right? We, we live in a small town. Everybody knows everybody. When somebody's supposed to come to work, they come to work. Um, and, and I think you still see um, that behavior from an awful lot of care providers. If you're working in health care at this point, especially after the last couple of years, you're doing it because you're trying to save people's lives. But what has happened for any number of reasons um, a great number of people have left the healthcare workforce, doctors, nurses, therapists, uh, folks in administration, whatever else it is. And as that was happening, the needs of the, of, of the COVID response were, were ramping up, and there surely was some cause and effect there about how it was to work in hospitals and, and, and um, people wanting to move on to something else. But um, early in COVID, there were kind of waves that went across the country, and you know, New York got hit, and Seattle got hit, and maybe Florida gets hit. And it, but there was some some sort of regionality or seasonality to it, so you'd have workers as your you know the supply chain for us. The supply chain, of course, it's equipment, of course, it's supplies, of course, it's drugs. But over sixty percent of expenses when you're in healthcare, are people. Um, you could have a sort of regional response and you could route people to different parts of the country when, when things were changing different parts of the country. Then January of 2022 hit, and that was what was called the Omicron wave. That was a different variant of the COVID virus. It hit the whole country at the same time. And whereas previously in Missouri, in 2020, we got to the point that we had a little over 2,000 people in the hospital at the same time with COVID. In summer of 21, the Delta wave hit. It was more aggressive, moved really fast. We had almost 3,000 people in hospitals in Missouri at the same time had COVID. In January of this year, when Omicron hit, we had 4,000 people with COVID in hospitals at the same time. And that wasn't just happening here. It was happening all around the country. It was a big high spike that fortunately went away pretty quickly. But what that meant was in a national labor market, instead of sending people from Texas to New York, and then sending people from New York to Texas, we all got hit at the same time, and labor rates went up very, very significantly, and we had shortages, and you had hospitals who either could afford or or were mission-driven, they decided they had to do it, they're gonna pay whatever it took, and all of a sudden, they're paying an agency $225 an hour for a nurse that gets paid $25 an hour, or $30 an hour in a normal environment. They either did it or they didn't. If they didn't, we didn't have enough beds to take care of all the sick people. And if they did, they got in a really deep hole financially and started running on a monthly basis, millions of dollars more in labor expense per month than what they were used to. And that's what's contributed to to this.
0: So John, what do you think, okay. How long have you been in your role now? Just over a year? Yeah,
1: it was my fault. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> no, I, no. I started October twenty one.
0: <laughs> okay. If you could see us when we get together, we, we we laugh a lot and tell a lot of stories. But I'm curious, takeaways from your interactions as you travel the state, what are the keys to success for those rural hospitals that are doing well right now? How much time do we got? Yeah, yeah we got <laughs> Yeah, no,
1: I, I realize I just spent twenty minutes on gloom and doom and I'm sorry. That's that's actually not my shtick. Um, but it is I think it's fair and I think it's important there are a lot of folks who are doing well. Um, Changes, I'm I'm super proud to have been a rural hospital administrator and a a resident there in Albany. And I think we've seen tremendous innovation. I think we've seen people that rather than just whine or complain about their lot in life, they figured out new ways to do things. Um, We've had still, you know, you're in a competitive environment anytime you're in business but we've seen a level of collaboration that that wasn't always present before. You had rivalries where people just set that aside and said, man, whatever it takes. We're gonna work together. We're gonna answer the bell. We're gonna take care of people in our region. And what we see now is a continuation, and what we try to foster as an association is a continuation of conversations about how are we collectively going to bring new technology to bear Invest together in things that can save us money, provide better care, and it's tough. It's tough right now, um, but but it's interesting. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. And whereas before, as a rural hospital administrator, I was worried about if my patients went to Kansas City, they went to wherever, um, were they going to disappear forever, or were they going to come back to us for care? Well, I'll tell you. When, you, when you're a big hospital and there's no place to send your patients to discharge so you can take care of more folks, you get really focused on relationships and how information travels and how expertise travels and how you can get patients from Kansas City back to Albany or whatever it is. And so what we're seeing now is that a lot of goodwill was built up among various uh, providers of healthcare and that as they continue now to be wired on, how do we do what's best for the patient, how do we get them where they need to be to the level of care that can do what's needed um, and free up capacity elsewhere in the system, I think that will serve us all very well. Okay.
0: With the few minutes that we have left, you know, from your association standpoint, what are the opportunities that you see, particularly from a policy perspective, that you, you all plan to pursue? Things that should be on our minds, and I wanna point out, you know John you know we have a number of our members who are involved in health care themselves uh, or family members are involved in health care you know I look out at the audience I think miss Andy Jackson stepped out but a good portion of our health care policy uh, came from Adair Schuyler County back in the day through our policy process so these are a group of folks who are very engaged and would like to know what what's out there what are y'all working on
1: yeah so some of it's just nuts and bolts stuff that's not the most fun. But it is interesting when you're you're, um, trying to decide on how to make health and wellness available to a population. It's a lot more than just how are you taking care of sick people. And um, I think one important thing, since we don't have time to cover all of them, um, I personally experienced years of trying to help a younger brother deal with mental behavioral health challenges. And ultimately, we were unsuccessful with with my brother, Ryan. But it it gave me a really intimate look at the disconnect sometimes between physical health care and behavioral medicine, behavioral health care. And I am of the opinion that investments in behavioral health and mental health will pay for themselves many times over we got root causes of people's health status that have to do with nutrition, that have to do with exercise, that have to do with safe living conditions and all the rest. Um, But this, I think we have a particular moment here where we're recognizing the depth of behavioral and mental health challenges, and we know that we're understaffed and under-resourced in treating those. There are a lot of other sort of more selfish things from a policy standpoint that a hospital guy could talk about, but if we collectively can get really good at um, increasing reimbursement, funding, research, availability, and awareness for mental and behavioral health. I think it'll pay off many times over.
0: I'm just curious, you know, we talk about this, you know, I serve on the board of directors for my hometown hospital, and the number one need we need is behavioral health services, accessing those services. I'm curious, in your communities, how many of you would say, raise your hand and say the same thing, that behavioral health is a, okay, yeah. I mean, that's why, John, you know, we partnered with you all a few years ago along with University of Missouri Extension uh, to really work on tearing down stigmas associated with mental health. American Farm Bureau has the uh, Farm State of Mind website uh, portal where you can find resources. But truly, I appreciate you mentioning that because I think you replicate that in communities across the state where we know that that is a major need. I think, John, what we're going to have to do is probably have you come back over and we're going to record another podcast so that we can keep going with these discussions.
1: People actually listen to us just tell jokes at each other.
0: (laughs) We could probably come up with some really corny stuff. I'm sure.
1: No, I I feel bad because I feel like this was a really downer 20 minutes. This is the reality. And, And, guys, to the extent that you can help support, work with providers in your local communities, it makes a difference. Um, if you can be open-minded when, you're, when your organizations think about different ways of doing things. In our case, we partnered with a larger organization. I came really close to being the SOB that closed the hometown hospital. Um, we weren't really there, but that's what, that's what people thought about me. Um, we took a risk. We became part of something larger. It has worked well for us. It's not for everybody. But I guess the message I would give is um, we have big problems to solve. We have incredibly important work to do. This country needs strong rural communities. Go, it always goes back to that. Somebody has got to do the work that needs to be done in rural communities. Quality health care and access to quality health care is a right, and it's something that people in rural communities deserve, and we have to work together to make sure they have it.
0: That's a perfect transition. Let's give John a hand for. Yes, Tom. Based on what
1: you said about people's uh, mental behavior and so
2: on, what do you think the, the benefit would be if we were able to address that the way we should in regards to the uh, saving of
1: life and community that's going on in the world today? Did I phrase that before you understood what I'm saying? Yeah, different for me to quanti- difficult for me to quantify, but I'll tell you this. And... and I can't prove it. I'll do this the shortest way I can. We can talk more about it if you wish. I'm easy to find. Um, It is remarkable how many doctor visits, emergency department visits, and hospitalizations result because we didn't help somebody get better on the front end. And some of that is physical, but a fair bit of that is mental, emotional, behavioral. There's an awful lot of people out there dying of loneliness. There's an awful lot of people on antidepressant medication because we don't have proper supports and proper... um, Kind of culture, community, and relationship. And there's a lot of this stuff that can be done by being really good neighbors and looking out for people on the front end. And eliminating the happening every day. The, eliminating what? The shootings that's happening every day. Well, yeah, if we can eliminate shootings, that'd be a good idea too.
0: You folks see why I enjoy working with this guy. He really is what a asset uh, that the Missouri Hospital Association has, and. John, I look forward to continuing to develop this partnership and relationship between our two organizations. Likewise. Thank you. I gotta go do a bad job coaching a fifth grade basketball. Give him one more hand. Thank you. See you, coach. All right. Jason, make your way up. So, we're gonna now pivot to a conversation about an opportunity within the Farm Bureau family, truly, I think as we think about how to help individuals and our families get the coverage that they need. And so within Farm Bureau, we challenge one another, right, to to think big about how we can address complex issues. And if there's anything that we're doing at this annual meeting, what's our theme again? Rooted in service. So this second panel, we're gonna explore what's happening in our neighbor, our sister state of Tennessee, um, a space that they've been in for some time in terms of the health arena and helping their members. So Jason Beard, Assistant General Counsel and Vice President of Compliance. That is a mouthful uh, for Farm Bureau Health Plans of Tennessee. The man's a lawyer, we won't hold it against you. (laughs) Uh, So Juris Doctor from the University of Memphis. Uh, Legal career beginning in 2010. His professional experience. He's licensed to practice law in Tennessee and Mississippi. Uh, as well as the Fifth and Sixth Federal Circuit Courts of Appeal. He actually began as a labor and employment attorney uh, with a private firm and then was an assistant commissioner within the Tennessee Department of Labor and Workforce Development. I certainly am glad that Tennessee uh grabbed your expertise and brought you into the Farm Bureau family. Jason and his colleagues have been great thus far as we have talked about health plans. And you all will remember last year at annual meeting. We gave you all a survey, okay? And one of the questions really looked at, should this be something that Farm Bureau explores as a a member service? So as a follow-up to that discussion, we thought better way to continue and get into the nitty gritty than have Jason come. So Jason, what did I miss about your bio or where do you wanna start?
2: Thank you, Garrett. Some of that's even true. Uh, (laughs) After looking at uh, uh, John's uh, Bio. I thought, well, I got to put something in there. So, uh, but no, that that pretty well covers it. Um, I've been with uh, Farm Bureau Health Plans in Tennessee for uh, going on five years now. Uh, actually, grew up in uh, Murray County, which is where our headquarters is located, a little town called Santa Fe. We didn't know how to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> but grew up on a cattle farm there, and, uh, you know, I'm one of those, uh, come from one of those families where uh, one of my parents had to go to town to get a job to be able to pay for health coverage for the family. And, uh, and that, was, uh, that was how my whole life went. Uh, my grandfather's farm ended up getting sold off because that wasn't a thing that we were able to, to man and work Uh, Because we did have to stretch the resources out in different directions, and so this is very personal for me It was a a great honor to be able to have the opportunity to come back to Farm Bureau and be able to help with uh, uh, the health side of things because that's really you know I'll commend you guys on so many things that I've been able to see in the short time I've got to visit with you here, but uh, I see a whole lot of those uh, those corduroy jackets walking up and down these halls uh, with our FFA kiddos, and this is such a great opportunity for them. You've got young people, lots of young people who are interested in agriculture. They want to continue uh, the family farm, and if we don't make it affordable for them to do that and still be able to take care of their family's needs, then they're they're going to have to make a choice that could end up a lot like my family's situation did where they lose a lot of acreage, you lose a lot of acreage, you lose the ability to create income off that acreage and somebody has to go to town. And so uh, being able to be a part of what we do to make uh, to provide a service, uh, you know what what you guys have it's all about service that's what we do as the farm Bureau. It doesn't matter if it's Tennessee or Missouri. Uh, we are listening to our membership. And we are taking those ideas, and we are creating opportunities to better serve your, you and your families. And that's what we do at Farm Bureau
0: Health Plans every day. So, so some of you may not know, Tennessee Farm Bureau is kind of the behemoth uh, within the Farm Bureau family. They are the largest in terms of membership. And, and truly, we know you know you all for some time have been known for member services. Can you walk us through the background? I mean, because it's not like Farm Bureau doesn't help in the health space. In Missouri, through our brokerage company, you know, we're able to help members. But this is different, what Tennessee has done. So walk us through the history.
2: Well, uh, it all started in 1947. I wasn't there. Um, But I'm told that we started selling uh, what they called hospital plans back then. Uh, worked with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee to offer those plans uh, through our, you know, agents out in the field. And, and that's kind of how things continued at, at, over time. Things evolved into uh, uh, what we would recognize more as, as more comprehensive health coverage. And we were very, tied very closely to Blue Cross Blue Shield on that. Uh, in 1993, uh, we went to the Tennessee General Assembly and we requested uh, to uh, a provision in the Tennessee Code annotated that more or less said what we do isn't insurance. Now, at the time it was uh, done for tax purposes. Uh, we had no earthly idea that 2010 was, <laughs> was ever going to happen, uh, but we were, we were trying to keep our administrative costs down so that we could better serve our membership. The reason we were able to go to the legislature at that time and ask for this uh, exception is because we are the Farm Bureau. And that's not said, said in a braggadocious way. It's it's because we have earned over a long period of time. You know, the Farm Bureau Federation in Tennessee has been around for 100 years. We celebrated 100 years last year. And and the health plan is celebrating 75 years uh, this year. We we're at a point where they knew who we were they knew who we serve and they knew that we did it with that eye on service and our customer service is unparalleled I know you guys experience the exact same thing all across the state of Missouri on your PNC side and the other services that you offer to your membership and so we were able to go and say we are we are asking for an exception we are asking to in in short, be treated differently and you can trust us because you know us and you've known us for a long time and you can trust that we are going to do this and do what's in the best interest of our members as we do it. So that was passed and everything went on basically from the membership side exactly as it always had been. And then 2010 happened. The Affordable Care Act, everything changed. The Affordable Care Act uh, applies to health insurance and insur- health insurance is defined by state law. Our state law says what we do isn't health insurance. So basically what we were able to do is to continue to offer coverage. We're, we're, you'll, be <laughs> you'll see that we are very careful never to say insurance. We, we have health plans. We have health coverage. Uh, it is the functional equivalent of health insurance. Um, but what we offer is basically what health insurance looked like before 2010. So the main difference is that we are still able to uh, do medical underwriting. so that makes sure that the, uh, the, the highest risk uh, individuals who come in and who apply, we are able to deny those. And we are able to put uh, have pre-existing waiting periods, and we are able to, in some instances, this doesn't happen very often, to have riders for a period of time on a policy now. So that's all the negative stuff, right? That's where we get tomatoes thrown at us and that we're terrible people and all of that. We make no claim whatsoever that we are the answer for everyone. In fact, we're very emphatic that we're not the answer for a great many. For the Affordable Care Act, if if it's an individual who uh, is eligible for a subsidy, we can't compete with a zero dollar premium. But for those who make just enough that you don't qualify for a subsidy, but you don't make enough to pay two or $3,000 a month for your health coverage for you and your family, we are absolutely an option. And see, that's another thing that a lot of people want to throw at us is that because we do medical underwriting, they say we are sucking the good risk out of the ACA and making the ACA rates go up. We've had independent firms do extensive research into that and what, we've actually, what they have actually uncovered is that we're not pulling anything out of the ACA. The folks who come to us are individuals who most likely would have gone uninsured otherwise because they fit right there in that middle ground. Uh, for 65 and under, uh, it's a, I believe about 80% of folks, they get their coverage through an employer. That subsidized coverage through their employer, also something we're probably in many cases not going to be able to compete with. So really looking, at about a, a 10% or less slice of the pie. And so many times, those end up being uh, entrepreneurs, people who are self-employed, and people who are on the farm. That's, that, is, that is who we have so many of, are the folks who are running their business, there on their farm, and if the only other option they would have other than us would end up being, again, send somebody to town to get a job just for the health coverage and nothing else. But what we have been able to do because of how we're set up is to be able to offer coverage to folks that is about 40 to 60% in many instances uh, less than what you can find on the ACA. Or, and so that's, you know, again, that's, that's kind of how it has evolved. We've started working with other states and they've uh, had us come in and do what we were talking about here. Well, I guess,
0: how, how did that conversation start with other states? Because now in recent years, we've seen growing interest.
2: Well, it's because people are doing what you guys have done. Uh, they're, they're talking to their membership. This is becoming more and more. Uh, something John said uh, struck me, he said today, uh, health care co- is uh, one fifth of the U.S. economy, right? Health care costs. Do you remember, you remember the headlines in 2010? It was one eighth. I remember specifically that figure from 2010. It was one eighth of the U.S. economy. That's what you know everybody was saying this is a this is a government takeover one-eighth of the u.s economy the size of the economy of california and now john comes in and tells us today that it's one-fifth it's a full 20 percent of the u.s economy and you saw the inflation rates it is the health industry is not immune health costs continue to get higher and if we're not able to find solutions like you guys have been going to your members and asking them what is it that we can do to help you if we're not able to find solutions to make health coverage more affordable for our members, then again, they're going to have, by necessity, they will have to find different opportun- different options to provide for their families, because that's what we're here for, right? I mean, I, I I love Farm Bureau, but I don't go there because of my deep-seated loyalty for Farm Bureau, even though I am deeply loyal to the Farm Bureau. I've, I've had a policy uh, since I was 16 years old and got my first vehicle, uh, but, but it's, it's about going home and being able to pro- provide for your family. I've got a beautiful wife, I've got three beautiful little girls, and I will, I will do everything I can to make sure that they are safe and that they are cared for. And what we do every day is put another quiver in the, in, in the, in the arrow, or in the bow. Uh, yeah, quiver in the bow, arrow in the quiver. I don't do archery a lot. <laughs>
0: That's all right. Jason, just keep going. <laughs> just keep going. We're,
2: we are giving them more options. How about that? Uh, more options to be able to provide for their family because that's what we're all here for. That's, what, that's, that's why we do what we do every single
0: day. I okay, see. So you mentioned a, a key point earlier in terms of hoping to do that at the, some point. <laughs> the exemption that your General Assembly afforded in 1993. So as you talk about states... Uh, that are now being able, state farm bureaus that is, being able to offer health plans. Clearly there's a legislative piece, right? state by state. There
2: is, and uh, you know that, that's, that's the first hurdle. If you don't do that, nothing else nothing else can be done. Uh, so we uh, when uh, Iowa was the second uh, state to pass a statute, they haven't worked with us on that, but they've got their own thing going, and I think they're happy with the success that that's, uh, that that's had. Kansas, Uh, Came to us and said, "Hey, listen, we're we're listening. We're hearing our membership. They're telling us this is something that they need. Can you come help us?" We were able to go help uh, help Kansas. We've been able to help uh, South Dakota and now Texas. Um, I'm sure I'm missing somebody, Indiana, Uh, and so again, it's uh, we are not running out trying to gin up business. Uh, These farm bureaus again are doing exactly what you guys have done. They're just listening. They're just listening because that's what Farm Bureau does. We listen and we try to serve. Uh, And so whenever you're hearing this over and over and over again as a need from your constituents, then you have to do something. And then, of course, we're so proud to be established in this area so that we are uh, known for this and subject matter experts on it. We've got so many great and smart people on our team uh, that folks, other Farm Bureaus have been willing to reach out to us and and pick our brains and that's led to partnerships that has uh, resulted in tens of thousands of individuals being covered uh, with our affordable plans uh, that they might not have had otherwise
0: thank you i'm sure this question is amongst every person here talk a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of coverage yeah what does it look like
2: so i can i can tell you what ours looks like i can tell you what the other states looks like you know it's a decision that comes down to uh, what everyone wants to do. It's your plan. If the, if the legislature grants you the authority, then it is your plan. We're just here to try to help in any way that we can. Uh, it is from a benefit structure. It is very comparable to what you would find in an ACA bronze plan. For wellness visits, it's a zero dollar copay. Uh, so obviously we're, just like John was talking about, You know, if we can catch a lot of these things on the front end, you can save so much of the health expense on the back end before it becomes a major problem. Uh, we we, we uh, ascribe to that. And so we want to get folks in there uh, on the front end and be able to get that coverage early, be able to detect things early, and, and get that treatment before it becomes something that's out of control and untreatable. Uh, so that's part of it. We it's it's a very comprehensive plan. From uh, uh, another benefit, I can't go through uh, <laughs> line by line of what's covered and what's not, uh, but I can say it works just like you would normally expect uh, insurance to work. Uh, there are copays, there are deductibles. Uh, you get to pick different levels of deductibles within your plan. Um, it's you know prescription drug coverage is part of it there's there's just lots and lots of options we have a great dental and vision bundled plan as well
0: okay Jason how many folks on average for the states in which health plans are offered how many are essentially rejected and don't make it through the process
2: yeah that's a that's a great question uh, we on average I believe we accept accept and enroll uh, in excess of 90 percent of the folks who apply now Whenever we go into a new state, that percentage is sometimes a little bit higher because folks are just kinda, you know, it's like throwing something against the wall, to see what works, you know, they wanna give it a try because it is a very affordable option with really good coverage, comprehensive coverage. Um, and so they, we get a lot of applications there. But even that, I've never seen it below 80, 85%, somewhere in that range. But once everything gets established and it's leveled out, we accept over 90% of the folks who apply.
0: And it's a member benefit, right?
2: It is a member benefit. So that's another uh, one of the uh, benefits is that uh, if you have a Farm Bureau membership, then this entitles you to have this coverage as an, ac- as an option to add on to uh, all the other benefits that come with being a Farm Bureau member. And, you know, that's another thing, uh, back to the coverage and what we do, no one's premium ever goes up because of their personal health situation. We've got so many folks who, you know, have had cancer, have had transplants, very very expensive uh, premature babies, preemies are very expensive. We've never nor will we ever at any point uh, increase that pers- that individual or that family's premium because of their individual health experience. Now, there are there are rate increases from time to time. It is always based on the collective Uh, experience of the entire group okay there is never a point where someone has a catastrophic injury or illness where we say nope we're dropping you you're too sick sorry we're dropping you." if you get in if you're one of that 90 plus percent and you keep paying your premium then you're on the plan we've got folks that have been on the plan for decades and then when they hit Medicare eligibility they enroll into one of our Medicare supplement plans and we just we keep people for life. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of how that goes. Uh, again, a lot, a lot of folks, they want to they throw in the scare tactics of all the other things. The proof is it's never happened. It's never happened.
0: I'm real curious. Okay, get your questions ready because we're going to have about eight minutes for questions. What percent of Tennessee's population do you think? Like uh, of the total market, how many are... You know, as we talk about this, and again, some of the scare tactics that are used, I mean, I appreciate the point that you mentioned earlier that so many times the people that you're serving are people that were not being served before, right? The unmet need. So what does that look like in Tennessee, you think, with your population? Any idea? Uh,
2: I don't have specific numbers. (laughs) I'm sorry, I wish I did. If I I were as smart as John, uh, I could throw some numbers out at you. I, I don't have. I don't have a PowerPoint either. No, you're good. Um, but no, that I, I I know that we have the studies that have been conducted uh, show that uh, Tennessee does have uh, a, a relatively low uninsured rate among our uh, citizenry as compared to other states that that are similarly situated. Okay, uh, that's. I'm sorry, I know that no, sounds no, like
0: that sounded like a lawyer answer. <laughs> hey, you had to do it at some point I know, in this. okay. Questions. Anybody got a question? John. Uh, your plans,
2: uh, are they specific and
1: uh, reasonable and customary and doctor oriented? You have to you know you keep your doctor, no you can't. You gotta to go to this
2: one. Uh, sure. Stuff is that? No, that's that's a great question. So we uh, utilize the uh, United Uh, healthcare uh, PPO network and so it's a extremely broad network it's a national uh, network and so if uh, if you guys were to get this legislation passed and decide you wanted to work with us and this is a way that you wanted us to help it you would tie into that united network on on day one Uh, we also in that vein uh, if uh, we, do, we do pay for out-of-network, we do have out-of-network benefits as well. Obviously, the in-network biz, uh, benefit is uh, more advantageous than the out-of-network. But again, it's a very broad network. If you're going on vacation in some other part of the country, there's gonna be a good choice of United Network providers that would be available to you. Uh, we do not, uh, also kind of in that vein for specialists, we do not require a, prof- uh, a referral. If you need to go to a specialist, you go find the specialist in the network, and you can get that service uh, without having to first stop off at your uh, primary care physician and then get them
0: referred over. Mr. Cruz, I think, did you have one? Okay. Okay. Yep. Representative Berger.
2: How many different plans do you offer, different levels of plans do you offer? So we offer two plans that would uh, be considered kind of more of that comprehensive coverage, and those are the two that uh, I've described as very uh, close in line with the benefits offered in a ACA bronze level plan. Uh, We also offer a major medical plan, a high deductible health plan, uh, and, um, well, I was gonna say, we. In Tennessee, we do a short-term plan. We don't typically do that anywhere else because it's just not very popular. Folks aren't really asking for it. So people can buy into the plan that's tailored for their needs. That's what. Yes, sir. That's right. That's right. And those are family plan. Uh, some of those have family options. Some of them are, are some of those are just individual options. And within each plan, there are different uh, uh, deductible rates. So, obviously, the higher your deductible, the lower your premium would be. Somebody has a lot of options, a whole slate of options, to see what really fits best with your budget. Uh, We also, for the folks who become Medicare eligible, we do have Medicare supplements, and we do have a uh, a dental and vision bundled plan. It's just one premium for both sets of benefits. It's the Delta Dental uh, Network and the VSP Vision Network.
0: In other states, are, are there any other organizations doing this aside from Farm Bureau? Uh,
2: Not exactly the way we do it. Um, Again, I think it comes down to that. uh, You've heard of health sharing ministries. Uh, Those are great options for a lot of folks. They are set up in an entirely different way uh, as far as how they reimburse uh, claims. Um, It's, I'm not gonna get into the details. It's just different. What we do again is the functional equivalent of insurance. We do, those, those premiums do come into a pool uh, it's, that risk is then spread out across the group and those claims are paid we own that risk, we hold that risk there's never going to come a point where the pool runs dry and we say oh I'm sorry uh, if you'd gotten sick in January we would have been there for you but unfortunately it's December and, and you know we had too many claims it's not ever going to hit that we, we keep uh, reserves that uh, meet and, ex- and far exceed any Department of Insurance uh, financial reserve requirements for a health plan? Okay. Jim, do you have is there a flex plan part of this, and can you use it as a secondary behind an employer health plan? So, uh, help me with what you what exactly you mean by flex plan? It's something you pay into, it's tax deductible. Okay, like a flexible savings account. Okay, we do not have. Uh, Flexible savings accounts, those can be paired uh, with the high-deductible health plans. Uh, However, that's not something that we handle. You would have to find some other entity that just does flexible spending accounts. Uh, And as far as the bringing in as a kind of a supplemental or secondary behind uh, a primary insurance, uh, we are able to coordinate benefits, and so we do that a lot. Uh, Usually, it ends up uh, actually what I see the most is it ends up being on children, uh, if Mom and Dad have their own plans, and they have added their, uh, the kiddos as dependents on both of those plans, then we have a whole department area that works with coordination of benefits. anybody
0: else? Right there. That's a, that's a great yeah, question. Very good
2: question, very good question. So uh, so for us, with the other states that we've operated in, it, it starts with getting the legislation passed. Uh, and obviously after that, sometimes it takes a minute for the governor to get the signature on it. And we really, we're really in a holding pattern. It's, we, can, we can start doing a lot of stuff and planning a lot of stuff. Like, for instance, my team. We we draft all of the policy documents. We draft all of the, the applications, all of the other things that go on. Uh, just because you guys have mentioned that you're interested, I've already had my team go through uh, Missouri state law as far as the Medicare supplement, uh, you know, minimum standards. And just so that we're familiar. If the time ever comes where we get the green light, then we're ready to hit the ground running because we want you to get you guys to have a product as quickly as possible. It it's usually at minimum six months for us to get everything set up. So if uh, the legislation were passed in the uh, spring session, it had the governor's signature by summer, then we could probably have uh, some plans ready to go with effective dates on January 1st.
0: No pressure.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not gonna say we're not hustling during that six months, we are. (laughs) But we can get it done.
0: So Blake's given me the hook that uh, we're out of time. I do want to to note, we do have State Senator Sandy Crawford here as well, along with her husband, John. I'm not gonna tip my hand too much, but be listening for a reference in my annual address in the morning about quality of life and healthcare. Okay, So, so be listening. Think big and do good, folks. And this panel has been about thinking big and doing good. Having John, Jason, you coming. I appreciate the trip that you made here. You know, again, the respect that we have for our sister state Farm Bureaus and the work that they do, and the work that we all do collectively for one reason, the fact that Farm Bureau is truly rooted in service. The opportunity is great. I should note, so Emily Leroy, Emily waved to the crowd. So Emily, I noted for our county presidents, Emily serves as senior advisor in the office of the president, which basically means she takes on all special projects. Uh, Emily has also uh, taken up uh, the Foundation for Agriculture, so you'll see her working in the booth. But Emily is running point on being our brains, uh, if you will, on, on all things rural health. So again, be listening in my address tomorrow for an important update. And, and there's a reason why I noted Miss um, Sandy Crawford uh, and her attendance today. She's been taking copious notes. Also wanna point out to our, our great insurance management team that's here you know, within Farm Bureau, as we talk about service, we do it under the banner of one Farm Bureau. And I'm so proud of this team and the work that happens between Federation and our family of companies. So so thank you all for being here as well. So with that, folks, we are adjourned, and we will see you at dinner at five o'clock. Thank you.